Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This is what a First Rough Draft of History sounds like. My friends in Afghanistan are disappearing. They're scraping themselves off the face of the earth, terrified that if any trace is left behind, the Taliban will find them and kill them. In the very short time since their country fell into a deep, dark pit of despair, many of the Afghan people I know have simply ceased to exist. They have removed themselves from the world. That was Lynn O'Donnell, reading from some of her first rough draft of Kabul's fall and the end of America's 20-year war in Afghanistan. Lynn was there at the beginning and for large chunks of the two decades that followed, and she was in Kabul until almost the last moment before the collapse of the American-backed regime and the Taliban takeover. We spoke on a line from her quarantine space in Europe. I was on the last commercial flight out of Kabul on uh, Sunday the 15th of August. We were wheels up around about 10 past nine. It was supposed to leave at 8.30, but it was Kabul airport. So about 10 past nine, and then it was a five-hour flight to Istanbul. And I was travelling with my friend and colleague, the photographer uh, Masoud Hosseini, Pulitzer Prize winner. And when we arrived in Istanbul, we put our phones back on, as you do, and checked the news and learned that Kabul had fallen to the Taliban. And even though we were surprised, uh, we kind of weren't surprised either because we saw it coming towards us for the last three or four days um, very fast. And in the morning when we were driving to the airport about 5 or 5.30, there was no security on Kabul streets. Kabul has had what it likes to call a, a ring of steel. The signs even say on checkpoints, ring of steel. Um, uniformed and armed police and military at checkpoints all over the city. And on Sunday morning, they disappeared. And when security disappears, you know something's going on. But we really knew when we saw the fall of Herat a week earlier that uh, it was just a matter of time. And so as soon as we got back from Herat, we booked our tickets. I already had a ticket. I just had to change the time. Masoud had um, a Dutch visa. And uh, when we went to the Turkish Airlines office, there was a handful of people there and the manager just ushered us straight into his office because we had contacts who put us in touch with him. And a few days later, when Masoud went to the same office with a friend to get a ticket out, there were a thousand people there. So our timing was extraordinarily good and fortunate and lucky. And we feel very fortunate indeed to be out. You know, it's interesting, you say that when you arrived in Turkey, um, the first leg of your journey, that you felt a sense of surprise, even though the ring of steel seemed to have dissipated in the mor- just in the morning on your drive to the airport. Why were you surprised? Because this is the Taliban. <laughs> and in 2021, after 20 years in Afghanistan of people being like us, living normal lives, Remember that the vast, vast majority of the country um, of the people in that country are under 35. Something like 75% of Afghan people are under 35 and the mean age is 18. Everyone is connected to the world. Um, And so even though we saw it coming, 
we couldn't believe that it had happened because who would believe that that would be allowed to happen? You know, I went there three months ago to report on the war and this seemingly inexorable march of the Taliban across the country and still it was an oh my God, really? moment, yeah. But I tell you what, you know, NPR offered me a contract to stay the day before we left or two days before we left and I thought seriously about it and then I, you know, I looked around me and I listened to the people that I know who were telling me that senior people who worked for the president's um, office and the, in the presidential palace were packing up and leaving. I had a friend come over and pace around my living room and say, everybody's gone, they're all gone, they're gone. And, and you know, on the phone trying to get tickets and there were no tickets to get. And I just thought, it's if it's not a, a, a matter of weeks away, it's a matter of days away, it's time to go. And I told NPR, you know, I'm going to go. And on a conference call with the editors and security people and they went, okay. <laughs> so we knew, we knew it was happening, yeah. One of the things you, you just said that I find, it, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot Probably now is not the time to ask this question, so I'm going to stop myself. We'll come back to it. Oh, no, ask away. There's no such thing as an inappropriate question. No, this is, no, it's about the age. The age. One of the things, you know, you, you, brought the, you bring this up. You know, I, a, lot of, a lot of the photographs, I'm looking at the, the Taliban fighters, and I'm thinking to myself, God, these guys are young. And then you think, you know, it's 20 years. And you look at a face, say, if that boy was, if that fighter was even two years old when the U.S. drove the Taliban from power 20 years ago, I'd be amazed. I mean, you see guys who look like they're 19, 20, and it's the youth of it. And you've, you've been covering Afghanistan on and off for 20 years. I mean... You know the country and you know the Taliban as well as any journalist. What has allowed them to sustain and bring in a whole new generation? That is what is so surprising to me. Because you did mention, look, it's a, it's a whole new country. You got a whole new generation of people not born yet when the Taliban were overthrown. And yet they've managed to bring in these seedlings and bring them up into the Taliban, whatever it is, mafia, army, whatever you want to call it? Well, I think there's, um, I think there's a lot of reasons. And Afghanistan is an incredibly complex and complicated place. And there's all sorts of reasons that people do what they do. And at the very root of it, I think, is survival. But, you know, in the madrasas of Pakistan, and I met people who had come to Afghanistan in, for the fight in um, uh, 2001. They had been put on buses from their villages in Pakistan after being told by their mullahs from the loudspeakers of the mosques that they're infidels over there and we've got to go and fight them and kill them and, and um, take control of Afghanistan because it's part of our sacred land. 
Um, and I think a lot of that goes on in Afghanistan uh, today. The Taliban are anti-education, they're pro-ignorance, and the Taliban use religion as a, a weapon to keep people ignorant. And if you keep people ignorant, they don't question what it is that you're telling them, um, telling them that um, this is a sacred fight for Islam um, has been very effective. But also, um, there are many families who will send one son to the Taliban and one son to the, the state forces, uh, but they need the money and just to hedge their bets as to who is going to win. And that's another part of it. Um, I think I think there's been a lot of disinformation. I think think people on the front lines fighting for the government have been told that there is a peace deal, you don't need to fight anymore, come and join us. And so they've done that and found that that hasn't been the case or wasn't the case. And um, people need to eat. So in a family with five or six kids, one of them going off to fight with the Taliban for 200 bucks a month is going to put bread on the table for the other five kids. It's... Um, yeah, and, and you're right, a lot of those um, boys who we see in the photos now um, weren't born the last time the Taliban was in control of the country and their sisters don't go to school anyway and their mum doesn't leave the house, so what's the difference? You know, this is all for God and country. Um, so there's that as well, but there's so many complexities, there's so many layers of complexity that it's it's difficult to know what the reason is for anybody in different parts of the country. But certainly in the cities, people have embraced the democratic experiment and, you know, they have their smartphones and their laptops and their Facebook accounts and they drink coffee and go to cafes and go to parties and hang out with girls. You know, um, there, is a, there is a normality that is being extinguished. The extinguishing of normality, I think, over the last couple of days, there's been this sense that, well, this just goes on from the fact that it's been 20 years and it's a different kind of Taliban, maybe. Um, is it strong enough? Is it rooted enough after 20 years that there will be a way to resist? And by resist, I don't mean with guns. I'm thinking of, uh, in 2001, I spent much of the time that the war to overthrow the Taliban was going on in Iran. That was just happened to be where I was based, and I went out to the border, uh, what was the eastern border of Iran, the western border of Afghanistan. Um, but I was a lot of the time in Tehran, and I was amazed at the ways in which that kind of normal life, what we would consider normal, went on. You know, the women had to wear their hijabs and, and whatever, but then they would go to a party and in a private home, and there weren't secret police in every home, and you know, they would have normal parties. There was alcohol. How did this happen in an Islamic state? There was plenty of alcohol. And I just wonder, is that going to be possible? Is that likely to happen in Kabul? Or do you reckon that the Taliban will be a lot more brutal about policing uh, the haram activities of the upper middle classes. Yeah, I do. I think that we're seeing that brutality uh, taking hold and uh, people will be very fearful for some time to come that they will be uh, 
found, found out, and also that they will be informed on. You know, survival um, also leads to treachery, and I think that there will be great, great caution in coming weeks, months, and years. I think that's just a given. Um, and also people will be concentrating their efforts on trying to get out of the country, keeping their heads down, not being uh, provocative in any way. Yeah. Um, there has been a, a liberal, a broadly liberal element everywhere I go across the country, you know, and um, Afghanistan has uh, a, a liberal and broad-minded uh, version of of its religion knitted into its DNA, and that is being extinguished as well in favour of an extreme interpretation that is all about suppression and repression. And yeah, we're going to see that. It's going to be very tough for people who have become very used to a much more liberal way of life, no matter how um, much they keep it to themselves and amongst their own circles. Uh, but we will see, and we're already seeing resistance. Um, I know that you said uh, without the guns, but I, we're seeing the beginnings of a civil war take hold with guns. And we've also seen in the past few days, not passive resistance, but very brave resistance in the street by women, by people waving the um, the flag of Afghanistan, the tricolour. Uh, it was Independence Day on Friday, the yesterday, and it was um, people waved the flag, and they were beaten up in the street by Taliban for doing so. So the other thing to remember, Mike, is that. Violence and pain and fear of death is a is a very strong deterrent to any sort of resistance. And for instance, it what it's what keeps North Korea the way it is, and it's what keeps China the way it is. Uh, so resistance in the face of the threat of violence and death needs very brave people. And at the moment, you've got very traumatized people, and it takes a little while, I think. Uh, just because of human nature to get used to new, rea new reality and that's where we are at the moment. It's only been a week. I'd like to just step back a bit. You had a long stretch in Afghanistan as the bureau chief for Agence France Presse. Well, AFP was 2009 to 2011, and that really was the height of the war. Um, Afghanistan was the top of the news agenda for the whole time I was there. That was Obama's search, Petraeus McChrystal. It was while I was bureau chief for the Associated Press that Afghanistan was off the boil in terms of uh, news importance. And uh, we did uh, spike up and hit the top of the news agenda every now and then. But it was uh, that period, 2014 to 17, and for a couple of years after, when I was writing for foreign policy, when I'd left uh, Associated Press, that um, it was really off the boil. Um, but my time at um, AFP, it was, it was top of the agenda. It was Obama's good war. But in that time, and, and later, uh, when you were at AP... You had a lot of dealings, obviously, with officials. So you saw, frankly, the ineptitude and corruption up close. How would it have been possible for the United States, for the West, to somehow correct the ship? Because I get the feeling 
that so long as the government was deeply corrupt and quite possibly in contact with Taliban elements, you will know better than I, that this was never going to really end well. Well, there was a lot of hubris involved in it. The United States and its allies insisted that Ashraf Ghani remain at the head of the government. He created a cult of personality around himself without even having any personality, certainly no charisma. And um, there was an enabling of the corruption on a grand scale uh, that uh, we now know about and has been instrumental in the fall of the um, of the of the government. Um, it was known about, that level of corruption was known about. I remember John Kerry came in. He invited a bunch of foreign correspondents over for lunch at the US Embassy and he said uh, there's going to be consequences unless then President Karzai cleans up the corruption. He's got to, you know, I've come in here and I've told him it's got to be cleaned up. And I said, or what? He said, watch this space. And then he went off, and within, a, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks, maybe not even that long, one of the big US papers reported that the Kabul Bank had been robbed of a billion dollars, and that remains uh, the biggest bank collapse in history. The Kabul Bank was robbed by the people who were on its board, who were lending themselves money from the bank's reserves, and they stole a billion dollars, and that was revealed by a leak from Kerry's State Department to one of the big papers, I can't remember, might have been the Washington Post. And um, still they supported the Afghan government and they supported it until, I don't know, Sunday, the 15th of August. Um, everybody knew what was going on. Now, when I came back for these past three months, that corruption was visible and known about. Uh, senior um, government officials were setting up, uh, for instance, television stations, uh, charities. They were laundering their money through these businesses that were supported and charities that were supported by the international community. And uh, every now and then, planes would take off with bags and bags of money in the hold off to Dubai where it would be put into businesses, real estate, whatever ventures there. Um, this has been known about for 20 years. So there are no excuses for allowing uh, government officials to continue to siphon off enormous amounts of money that was meant for, for instance, uh, building schools, building hospitals, supporting the armed forces. I went to the front lines and met soldiers who hadn't had decent meals for a month eating three-day-old bread brought to them in a sack from uh, the nearest city two hours drive away uh, using, you know, decade-old AK-47s when the United States paid for M-14s, for instance. Why are you fighting? We're fighting for ourselves because if, um, if we don't fight, uh, the Taliban will take our land from our families. You're fighting for Ashraf Afghani? No way. Everywhere I went, no way. Yeah. I even interviewed the foreign minister, Hani Vatma, for foreign policy, and he refused to be interviewed sitting at his desk because behind his desk was a portrait of Ashraf Ghani, and he did not want to have his photograph taken with Ashraf Ghani above his left shoulder, his foreign minister. This is extraordinary. This uh, sense that, to a degree, 
we've seen it in Iraq as well, that somewhere in Washington, at the highest levels, everybody has to know that this is going on. I mean, they're not, they're not stupid, but that somewhere some kind of group think has taken hold of official classes that says, you know, this is the binary. Well, we've got the Taliban and we've got this corrupt bunch of thieves. Which thieves do we want to back? And of course, in the case of Afghanistan, I get the sense that, you know, the thieves at the highest level are talking to each other anyway. I mean, that's sort of where we are now, aren't we? I mean, Hamid Karzai refuses to go away. He's back, you know, and you write about it in, in, since you've been back in some kind of troika, a uh, trio of people who, whose names some people may still remember from the news when Afghanistan led the news bulletins. And they're going to be dealing with the Taliban, some of whom they've probably known for years. Oh, they're all mates. Yeah. They're all, they're all very good friends. They're all in it together. Um, and, you know, this mirage um, of peace talks that uh, Donald Trump set in train that's been going on for a year now um, have just been a forum for them to get together and plot. And the last time they got together was a couple of weeks ago and people who, t who were there and told me about it said, Abdullah Abdullah is um, getting into bed uh, very closely. They're tightening the sheets around themselves with um, Mullah Baradar and um, they're, they're going to bring the Taliban in. I heard about this weeks ago, two weeks ago, you know. And Hikmatia, Gubuddin Hikmatia, the butcher of Kabul, part of... Um, you know, that awful, awful civil war that killed 80,000 people in Kabul alone between, you know, in the early 90s. It's just, yeah, back to the future. Yeah, and they're all in it for the money. There is no, um, there's no motivation here except money. I mean, you know, we can talk about what the Taliban are and what they do. They are the biggest drugs producing and uh, trafficking uh, criminal cartel in the world. They make billions of dollars growing and supplying almost 100% of the world's heroin, and they've branched out into methamphetamine, which is much cheaper to produce, and they produce it from a plant called ephedra that grows naturally and wild in Afghanistan. And you buy a shipment of um, made-in-Afghanistan uh, heroin and you'll get a starter pack of five kilos of meth to get you going and create new markets. It's astounding. And this is, you know, we know about this. I tell people about this. I've been writing about this for years. And for the last week since I left Afghanistan on the 15th, I've been doing back-to-back -back radio, television, writing, as you know, and I don't pull any punches on this. This is a criminal cartel. They are on the point of getting diplomatic recognition uh, from China, Russia, Iran and Pakistan. And then you have the UN Security Council tied up and there's nothing anybody's going to be able to do about it. If you were a policymaker in Washington in 2009, rather than being reporting from Kabul, would you have said, forget about it, cut and run, leave it be? Mm. Uh, well... Cut and run, no, because um, ordinary Afghan people have really benefited, really benefited. Um, 
as I as we mentioned before, you know, my friends living normal lives, being normal people, hoping for no, normal futures for themselves and their children. So no, not cut and run. But um, had I been a policymaker when um, the United States said and NATO said we are going to end our combat missions on the thirty first of December, twenty fourteen. Um, I would have made it very, very clear that, no, I'm not saying, as everybody accused Obama of doing, I'm not saying this is when it ends. I'm saying this is when it starts for the Afghan government. This is when they have to step up. We're going to hold them to account for corruption. We're going to make sure that what they say they are doing with the money is being done. And if it's not, we're going to start, you know, closing off that spigot of cash and we're going to freeze the assets and the passports and uh, ability to land of Afghan officials because theft and corruption is not on our agenda. That's what I would have done. I would have been like a school mom with my hands on my hips saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you get it? This is what I'm saying to you. And I mean it. They didn't say it. And if they had said it, they wouldn't have meant it. I mean, look, you know, it's... We've created billionaires. I like the, the image of you as a schoolmarm. My, my listeners, my loyal, my small but loyal band of listeners don't really know what you look like or have been in your company, Lynn, and I have. And I, I, can, I can tell you it's a frightening thought. <laughs> you, you, may not, you may not be large, but you are forceful. <laughs> Unfortunately, Obama went for the professor rather than the primary school teacher sit in your seat, I'm talking to you. And it might well have been better if he'd gone for the the elementary or primary school teacher, you know, saying, you have detention, and I'm going to tell your parents and you're going to get in trouble, rather than relying on people's adult better instincts. Because when you have that much cash coming close to your fingertips, I imagine it's very hard to resist, especially if your inclination is towards corruption anyway. Well, it was all, it's all about, well, we better siphon off these billions and put them in our bank accounts abroad and buy some more real estate in Dushanbe and Dubai because we don't know when the spigot's going to close. It can't last forever, surely. Um, so, yeah, this professor, professorial approach... Um, very reasonable, a reasonable way of dealing with unreasonable people. It, yeah, it didn't work, and it's a pity. Um, but yeah, you know, my school mom approach. I, I do think I, I have this belief that I cannot shake that I am seven feet tall, Mike. So just from that perspective, I, I, I don't shy away from saying, "Are you for real?" Who do you think you are? Why do you think you're going to get away with this? But the fact is that they've got away with it. It's hard to predict the future. No, you can't fast forward reality. But, I, but from your articles that I've read so far, you seem to think it's a dead cert that there will be some kind of civil war coming. Yeah, I do. Um, the first vice president under Ghani's um, uh, presidency is a man called Amrullah Saleh. And um, he was... 
uh, a close uh, comrade in arms with uh, the legendary anti-Taliban resistance fighter Ahmad Shah Massoud. Massoud was killed uh, two days before the 9-11 atrocities and um, his son Ahmad uh, Massoud has taken up his mantle and uh, Saleh is in the Panjshir Valley uh, with Massoud and they are pulling together an armed resistance. The Panjshir is the only part of the country that is not on not under Taliban control. It's not a happy prospect for a country that you clearly love. People say, uh, you know, do you love Afghanistan? Is it your home? No, it's not my home. I'm not a, I'm not an Afghan person. It, you know, it's been very good for my reporting career. But, um, you know, you spend enough time in a place, you, you learn about the people and you make close friends. And I have very dear friends there. And when I went back three months ago, no longer, the boss of you know big busy frontline um, news bureaus the people who had worked for me and who I'd kept in in touch with were now my very close friends and I have a lot of very good friends there and I'm just absolutely heartbroken for them and through those friends I have more friends and people who um, I'm in touch with and so I'm just bereft and you know being as busy as I have been since leaving on Sunday has enabled me to have a shield between me and my own emotions and reaction. I, I'm not yet at the point where I'm processing what's happened, what I've been through and what they are going through. I get messages every day from my friends dating me on what's going on from people that I don't know begging me for help to get them out. It's just awful awful and shameful. Lynn O'Donnell, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's lovely to talk to you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can read Lynn O'Donnell's reporting from Kabul at Foreign Policy Magazine and at her substack, lynnodonnell.substack.com. That's Lynn with two N's and an E. My thanks again to her for making time for me after a brutal couple of months. And while we're chatting, visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. There are other podcasts about Afghanistan to be found there. And while you're there, make a donation, please, to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.